I'm going to invite you to get a little undignified with me today, okay? Michael already invited you to dance, so I'm pretty safe with that, right? Okay. And I know you, you weren't dancing because you're confined in the pews, right? That, that's right. Yeah, that's the reason. Yeah. Okay, so you're going to get a chance um, in a little bit. Let me ask you to pray with me. Father, we bend our hearts before your throne, recognizing that you're majestic, you're glorious, and you're full of splendor. And when we say things like you're all to us, you evaluate us, wondering if we really mean what we say. And sometimes, Father, we would confess it's easy to say it in this moment, but not always carried out throughout the course of the week. So I ask this morning that you would speak to us individually right where we're at, personally, about the depth of our relationship with you and how much we really do or don't mean those things that we say, that we say we mean. I ask you to help us to check our heart. Father, as we look at your word, you tell us that it's, it's very convicting, so we ask that you would bring a conviction of our heart where that's necessary, and I ask that you bring encouragement where encouragement is necessary. Father, I pray for a, a, an ability to have boldness, perhaps that we have not known before, as a result of hearing what you have to say to us today. We would ask this in Jesus' name, that you would encourage us right now and that you would be our teacher through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Do you ever sense that your life could be so much more than what it is? Do you, do you ever have the sense that there's something laying dormant within you that, that's buried fairly deep, but it's just waiting to get out? And I mean in a good way. That if that fuse was lit, there's something within you that's just waiting to explode. Most people, if they were honest, would say, yeah, that, that's true. I, I feel like I could be something much, much more than I am. But either circumstances or people in our life or maybe decisions that we've made sometimes hold us back. I, I think you're going to discover this morning with the passage that we're going to look at, although it's only one verse in Ephesians, you're going to see that God really wants you to take full advantage of your relationship with Him and the, the standing that you have with Him both corporately for our church for New Hope, for what God's doing among us, but also for you personally. God really wants you to take full advantage of your standing with Him. And age is no matter. It does not matter if you're 8 years old or if you're 80 years old. I could say for some in our church, if you're 90 years old, it does not matter. Age is no issue with God. He can do what He wants to through you and with you. So I have to ask a couple questions as we move forward. First of all, this one would come to mind. What keeps us from accomplishing our ultimate purpose, what God really designed us for? What does God want to do through you? Maybe I'll phrase it this way. What can God do through you? If you grew up in church, you would say anything He wants, right? Because God's able, correct? Just make sure we're all on the same page here. God's able, right? Yeah, he's, he's capable of doing anything that He wants. 
So what stops him from being able to do through us anything that he wants to do when he says he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine? We have to stop and check ourselves. Now we've been learning as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians that we're in the midst of a battle. And this battle is very serious, it's very real. And sometimes Satan brings the battle right to our doorstep. And it, it makes its place presence known in our home. And we feel like he's camping in the, the guest room at our house. That's how real a battle is for some of us. He brings that battle in such a way, in many cases, that he causes us to stumble. And we don't ever measure up to the things that we really can be. That battle becomes so real, and the attack becomes so vicious, that it can stop us in our tracks. And that's part of Satan's goal and part of his strategy, is to throw us off our game. Because he knows that God wants to work through us. So we understand that ultimately, our defense is really not in ourselves, in our ability to move forward, it's really in God. And it's in His ability to meet us right at the point of our need. That's what Ephesians is really all about. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to look at verse 15. I'm going to ask you to do this also though. If you put a placeholder in, in Ephesians, and we're also going to look at the book of Isaiah around chapter 50. Right around chapter 52 actually. So let's look at Ephesians 6.15 first, and then we're going to transfer over to Isaiah chapter 52. You'll see this on the screen, Isaiah 6.15, or Ephesians 6.15 says this, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now if you were here last week, you understand that we were looking at this concept of what it means to gird ourselves with the belt of truth. We talked about the Romans having to tuck their tunic into their wide leather belt so that the soldiers could run into battle. And they couldn't do that if they didn't have their tunic tucked into this belt that they wore. And Paul's using this imagery here because he's in chains, he's in prison, and he's looking at Roman guards, and he writes about putting on the belt of truth, and he talks about the breastplate that the soldiers wore, the breastplate of righteousness. And now he uses a really familiar image when he says you're going to have to shod your feet with something. We're incomplete if we don't have something on our feet according to what he's writing about this spiritual armor that we're supposed to put on. Otherwise, we're destined to stumble and we're destined to fall. Now, the word shod is not something you typically hear in the English language much anymore, is it? You probably don't use that on a daily basis. Some of you probably don't even know what that word is, but if you owned horses, you own horses, you understand what it is to to shod the foot of a horse. But very specifically, it has this meaning here in the Greek language, uh, uh, hupideo, and it, it literally means to bind something under the foot. So for the Roman soldiers, they, they bound something to their foot, this very specific footwear. Now, we would have to say, and I think you would agree, that a soldier's shoes are far more important than the shoes that you and I wear on a daily basis. They're even more important than what an athlete wears. Now, I know to a runner, his shoes are incredibly important unless they like to run barefoot. Because that may be the difference maker in how they compete in the race. But even more important than an athlete's shoes, a soldier's shoes will determine whether or not they live or die. Because for a Roman soldier, when Paul saw them marching on the Appian Way, understanding that they were marching down a, a road that was made of cobblestone streets, he could hear the clicking of their shoes because they were being sent out into battle. 
So they're marching on stone roads. They're crossing deserts with thorns. They're wading through streams with jagged rocks. They're climbing up the sides of canyon walls, all for the purpose of going into battle. And their feet need protection. And a soldier without protection on their feet, their feet get blistered, they get cut, they get swollen, and they can't swing a sword very well when they're massaging their feet, let alone advance the battle. It's just not possible. So Paul uses this very familiar imagery when he's thinking of these shoes. And I want you to see what their shoes look like, so I've got an image for you up on the screen. This is what the Roman soldiers wore. And it it looks like a pair of cleats, similar to what you might see if you were a soccer player, baseball player, football player. They had pieces of metal impregnated through the bases of their shoes, and they would walk very long distances with these things. Can you imagine leaving New Hope this morning with a pair of those strapped to your feet? Try walking to the Meridian Mall with a pair of those on, let alone walk from Rome to North Africa. This is government issue. This is what every Roman soldier was given. And this is the image Paul has in his mind saying, you're going to have something on your feet that is so secure that it anchors into the ground like a pair of cleats. You're going to shod your feet with something very specific. So when he says spiritual footwear is something you've got to have, we understand it's playing a very crucial role in this warfare against the schemes of Satan. So I want to understand, if that's so important, why should I be putting this on? He says you're going to shod your feet with the preparation. Now the the phrase preparation here is a Greek word that's in your notes this morning, but it it literally means a, a general readiness. You're prepared for anything that comes. So a really good soldier has got a good pair of boots, and his good pair of boots is going to allow that soldier to be ready to march at a moment's notice, to run into battle in a moment's notice, to climb, to fight, to do whatever is necessary. Jesus seeks the same thing in your life. He seeks for you to be ready at a moment's notice if you're going to walk in His name. Now, this will feel a little disjointed this morning, but this is the point at which I want you to flip over to Isaiah so we understand this imagery that Paul is using here. And I'm going to circle back around to my question that I asked you at the beginning. What keeps you from accomplishing your ultimate purpose that God has for you? We would say from the human side, it's a lack of goal setting. I meet people all the time who just dream and dream really big, but they never set a goal. And the difference between a dream and a goal is a calendar. Because if it's a dream, it's just someday it's going to happen. Well, someday is not on the calendar. You can look at Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It never says someday. You never find that on a calendar. So someday is a dream. A goal is a day of the week. You set, a, you set a goal, and it's purposeful, and it's intentional, and there's activities, and you can differentiate between those things that are important and those things that are not important. That's the human side between accomplishing a goal or just having a dream. But Paul's approaching this from the attitude of being prepared so that we can advance for the kingdom. And he quotes Isaiah, which is really interesting. Isaiah 52, verse 7. I want you to see it on the screen or in your Bible if you happen to flip over there. And this is what he says in Isaiah 52, 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation. Now, many people, when they look at Ephesians 6, 15, think that it's talking about preaching that it applies to the pastor or those people who are are out there and they're willing to share their faith and they're bold. Well, I I would tell you that Ephesians 6.15 is not specifically just referring to that because if we take it in context, 
We've seen in Ephesians 6 so far, we're talking about spiritual warfare against Satan, against the mighty fallen angel. And in context, if we keep it there, we're not talking about preaching and teaching, we're talking about fighting a battle. So why does he insert this quote right here when the subject is about fighting Satan? Well, to understand that, we really have to look at the way that Jesus used Isaiah as well, because Jesus used a very similar passage. If you remember at the very beginning of his ministry, he shows up out of obscurity and he attends a church service. Actually, he shows up at a synagogue. Nobody knew that he was coming. And because he's a surprise guest and he walks in the door, somebody decides, hey, it's this favored one is here. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And Jesus opens the scroll and he decides to read Isaiah 61, verse 1. If you don't mind flipping over there, you'll see it in your Bible, but I also put it up on the screen. This is the verse that Jesus decided to quote at the very beginning of his work here on earth. And this is what it says, Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners. Now there's something really remarkable about the good news bearer. This is very consistent with what Paul is saying in Ephesians, what he quoted in Isaiah, and what Jesus has just now said in Isaiah as well. The very first thing we see is, who is with you? Who is Jesus saying is with him? Participation, church, when you look at that. Who's with us? God. God is the one who is upon me. He's the one who sent me. Who's the one that is saying has anointed you? God, yeah. Who is the one who has sent you? God. So if God the Son, who emptied himself of all his attributes, says when he's on planet earth, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, and he has sent me, and he tells us that we walk in the same power, God really wants us to know the battle is not ours. It's not our battle. It's God's battle. He's the one that's doing the sending. He's the one doing the anointing. He is the one that's chosen you. So it's His battle. And not that He's only sent us, He's aware of where He's sending us to. Because a commanding general never sends his soldiers into some place he's not been himself and he doesn't understand. So God's aware of where you're at. Now, before we leave Isaiah, I want you to focus on this word, good news. Because it's consistent. Paul's talking about this good news. And then Isaiah says it. And then Jesus quotes it. So this phrase, good news, is a a Hebrew word. And you'll see it on the screen. It's in your notes as well. It's the word basar. And it literally means something fresh. Something new. That's not been heard before. It's it's just vibrant to the degree that it causes the, the one who's bearing it to be favored. That he gets to be the one to share and blast it. There's these tidings that no one has heard before. It's the bearer. Now, here's the disjointed part. We're going to flip back over to Ephesians again. Get our mind back in set of this soldier. This soldier image who's strapping these things to his body. And I'll ask you this question. How much more confidently do you stand in the midst of the battle when you know that you know that you know that you fight from a position of victory? when you're on the championship team. When I was in college, I played for a championship baseball team. 
And we traveled around the state and around the Midwest and the different areas that we played in. The schools knew that with the school that I belonged to, where we were coming to play, that we were championship players. And it, it was generally something, a, a feeling of arrogance that we had as young 20-year-old, 21-year-old, 22-year-old guys walking onto that base field, baseball field knowing that we'd had a history of being a championship team and that particular year that I was playing in my senior year, we were still a championship team and we felt cocky. We felt invincible. And when I stood at the plate to swing, even though I missed, I swung really well. And we felt so good about ourselves because we were champions until a bigger school knocked us off the field and they mopped the ground with us. But we had that sense of confidence. We're we're being told that we have this confidence in our stand. These cleats dig into the ground because of the victory that we have with God in our relationship. So in this passage, the gospel of peace, the good news, is that believers are at peace with God. And so when we stand and fight, He fights on our behalf. We used to be His enemies but no longer his enemies were no longer an enemy of God according to what happened in Romans 5 because in Ephesians 2 we saw a few weeks ago that we used to live that way, but no longer. Look with me on the screen, Ephesians 2, 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. We used to be that way. We used to be the enemies of God, but if you're a believer in Christ, if you're saved, you've been reconciled to God through the Son according to what Jesus did through his blood on the cross for you. So the gospel of peace, the way Paul's using it here, is this truth. In Jesus Christ, we are at peace with God, and that means we're one with him. Therefore, my feet, when they're shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, I stand in confidence knowing that God the Father himself goes to battle for me. I don't do it in my own strength. I don't do it in my own power. That translates to God's commitment to fight for me. Let me give you some perspective on that so it makes sense to you. Peter, the night that Jesus is betrayed, he's hanging out with Jesus in the garden. He's not anticipating the Roman soldiers to show up. Now you know that Peter was fairly brash and bold, and he usually was the first one to jump into things. We see the soldiers show up, and if you were here in the spring, we talked about this at Easter time, it was a pretty large army that came to arrest Jesus. A mixture of temple guards and Roman uh, soldiers that were sent out. Roman soldiers arrive on the scene, it's dark, and Jesus is the first one to speak, and he says, who are you seeking? Somebody, as a spokesman, says, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. To which Jesus responds, I am And John 17 says, at that, the soldiers are blown off their feet because God spoke with the authority of the declaration, I am He. And at that moment, the soldiers melt. Now they pick themselves up off the ground to see Peter standing there with a sword. Bring it on! Now can you imagine this in your mind? Peter's facing the Roman soldiers who are trained warriors. He's a fisherman. He's got a little fisherman's six-inch knife for gutting fish on him. And yet he's facing an army. And he's saying, bring it on. Why in that moment is he so bold? Because he just saw what God did. God's on our side. And I'm sure he's thinking in his mind, you have no idea who you're messing with. 
bring it on. At that point, Jesus says, Peter, put your knife away. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. But that's the confidence that is evoked when you know God is on your side. That's why Peter's approaching it that way. Now, let me give you another example. Israel faced a massive army. The Midianites were coming against Israel, and they had 35,000 trained warriors. Israel only had 20,000. God came to Gideon, who was the leader of Israel, and said to him, you're going to have to send some of your guys home. And, and Gideon's response is the same response I would have. What? Why would I do that? I'm thinking we don't have enough people. You're telling me to send some home? God says, if you fight this battle and you win, it'll be Israel's claim to fame by saying we did this in our own strength, of our own might, of our own ability. Everybody needs to know that I did this, so send them home. Just keep 300. So he gets 300 to go against 32, 35,000 trained warriors. And God is victorious. Here's another example. Judah is about to be invaded by powerful Ammonites and Moabites. And in that moment, King Jehoshaphat is so intimidated by this massive horde that's coming against Israel, he's convinced that his country is going to be decimated. In that moment, God sends a prophet to remind him, the battle is not yours. Let me show you what we looked at last week, 2 Chronicles 20.15. It says this, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. See, it's a consistent theme, isn't there? It's God's battle. It's God's war. You stand in the Lord's power. You don't need to fear. You don't even need to fear Satan, the most powerful being. So when he comes to attack, our feet are firmly rooted on solid ground because of the gospel of peace. That's what's going through Paul's mind when he's chained in a prison and he's looking at these Roman soldiers and that's how he can write to the people at Ephesus saying, you guys got to be encouraged. You shod your feet with the gospel of peace because you stand with God. And he fights in your stead because you were once his enemy, you're now his children. And so the Father offers you his full resources. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 8, if God be for us, who can stand against us? Do you remember when he said that? He said that just after claiming God sent his own son into this world to die for you. And on top of that, he said in verse 31, if that's the case, if God's for you, who could possibly be against you? Now, here's a mistake that many people think, make. They, they think that they can stand in their own power. Don't imagine that you can stand against Satan or against the attack of this world in your own ability. Because without the peace of God, without this proper relationship, standing on victorious ground, you have no ability to exert yourself if you're destitute of this part of the armor. When mockery comes against you, when people begin to deride you for your faith and you don't stand firm in what Christ did for you, the difficulties of this world are exasperating. Just think of Adam and compare yourself to Adam and Eve. Created in perfection, living in perfection, walking with God on a daily basis, physically walking with God. And yet their armor was not thick enough because they leaned into their own understanding. And so when Satan brought the attack to their living room, right to their front door, Adam leaned into his own understanding. And he leaned into his own ways. 
and it was conceived in his mind, and he fell to the temptation. So Paul's writing this framework saying, you stand in Jesus. If you're absent of this outlook, you're weak and you're easily conquered because if Adam can be defeated with perfect intellect, perfect understanding, how much easier could we be defeated? And our head begins to hang and our knees become shaky and there's a shadow over our heart when we try and stand in our own strength. If you think not, just think of Joshua. Joshua, the warrior of Israel, he trained under Moses God sent him out when Moses died to take over leading the nation. And even Joshua came to a point when he thought that God had abandoned him, that all hope was gone, and that it was over for him. Let me show you this on the screen. Joshua chapter 7 and verse 6. Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the ground on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over from the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? What happened there? Well, they were in a battle, and some of the men died, and there was a victory on the part of the enemy. So Joshua's on the ground, and if you go forward and you read in verse 8, God shows up and says, What are you doing on the ground? Why are you groveling? There's sin in the camp. Deal with the sin in the camp. I have not abandoned you. God does not abandon us. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But our spirits fail in times of trauma. And progress is completely stopped if the peace of God is not in our hearts and our minds. But when you let the love of God shine in your heart, and you understand that He conquered the victory, you're like Peter saying, bring it on. I'm ready for this. Paul is writing from chains. What's the source of his strength? He says, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. That's how I can do this. I personally believe in order to be able to bring the good news that he's talking about here, you personally have to be in a healthy place, properly equipped to be sure. But this is what I mean by healthy. You have to be secure in your relationship with God the Father. And I think many people are not secure in their relationship with God the Father thinking they have to do things to earn His favor. God likes you. He loves you. You don't have to earn His favor. He's already given His Son for you. So to be in a place where you can fight for the kingdom, you have to understand you're not only an image bearer for the king, but you fight from a position of victory. But also, you're in a secure relationship with God the Father, and no one can take that from you to the degree that you can even make Satan run. Did you know that? That's what Scripture says in James 4, 7. Look with me on the screen. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This word flee is the word fuego. It means vanish. He will run if you resist him. How do you resist him? You stand opposed to the things of Lucifer. You stand for the things of God. So to make Satan run from you, you have to know that you belong to God the Father and that you're secure in that relationship. That's what it means to have your feet shod in the peace of God. To stand firm with your cleats dug in the ground saying, this cannot change. So you can go forward in confidence, New Hope. You can move forward saying, no weapon formed against me can succeed. That's what God's promise was. You can stand against all the forces of hell itself. You remember what Jesus said? We talked about this two weeks ago. My church, my kingdom, I'm going to build it. And the gates of hell 
will not prevail against it. Was he talking about this building? Was he talking about the organization? He was talking about you. You're the church. I am the church. Hell cannot prevail against you because you stand in peace with God. So it's not possible for Satan to come against you. That's why James said, resist him and he'll run. You use the Word of God in your life. How powerful is this armor that God offers you? You understand the belt of truth now. You understand the breastplate of righteousness and you understand what it means to have your feet firmly planted in this relationship with God. So I'll close by circling back around to this question that I asked a little bit ago. Do you ever have the sense that there is so much more within you that your life could be so much more? Do you ever sense that it's just laying dormant within you? Do you feel that? That there's something just waiting to get out? What can God do through you? What keeps you from accomplishing your ultimate purposes in this world? If God said, I can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or imagine, did God just say he could do more? Or did he say, I can do exceedingly more? See, I can imagine some pretty big things. And I bet you can too. And God says, I can do exceedingly more than that. Here's where it begins. It all begins with believing. Not only that he's able, but that he's willing to do more than you can ask or imagine. Here's the part where I'm going to ask you to get undignified with me. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of surrender. Now, if you haven't already kicked your shoes off, maybe some of you do that just to get comfortable, I'm going to ask you to, in a symbolic way, let your feet be shown before God right now. It's okay if they're a little smelly. Your neighbor won't mind. Do this if you're comfortable. See, I hear the sound of surrender with those shoes coming off. I'll tell you why. You think that's the undignified part. The undignified part's about to come. If, if you're fully surrendered to God and symbolically you're saying, these feet, they belong to you. And I'll go where you want me to go. There's a possibility that you've said that at some point in your life, but you wondered why your life isn't becoming more. Why isn't God using you more? Perhaps it's because you're not confident about that relationship, that you're secure, that you're firmly planted, and no one can take it from you. You wear those shoes that God is promising you like a pair of cleats and you strap them onto your feet like a Roman soldier. Because in the midst of the battle, your salvation is so secure it cannot be taken from you. I want you to see the promise from your God about this great heritage that you have. And it comes from the Old Testament, Isaiah 54, 17. And this is your God speaking, saying, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. And this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. So do you believe that your God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or imagine? This is a chance for you to surrender to Him. And here's the undignified part. 
If you need to get on your knees right where you're at, in front of your pew if there's room, if you want to come up to the platform and do it, if you want to stand and praise with your arms up, or if you want to sit right where you're at, if you feel that God has moved in your heart and he's convicting you about this issue of total surrender to him so that he can do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that you ask or imagine, this is your moment because we're going to sing this song of surrender. Our God is able. Would you join me in that?